Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And this is Storymakers Show. And today we get to sit down with Jennifer March Soloway, assistant agent, parent, marathoner, and all-round nice person who shames me in terms of what I get done in a day. Jennifer March Soloway is an assistant agent working closely with executive agent Laura Renner. She enjoys all genres and categories such as laugh-out-loud picture books and middle-grade adventures, but her sweet spot is a young adult. Hmm... Sweet spot. So we had an exciting conversation this t- day, and we hope that you are excited about sitting down with this amazing, up and coming, multifaceted, really smart, and forthcoming and articulate agent to be. And with that, here's Jennifer and the rest of us. And enjoy the show. So, what are you working on these days? So, Really right now, I am working on becoming an agent and growing my career and getting set up to take clients. And right now, I've been attending a lot of conferences and events and meeting writers, which I love, and hearing their pitches. And people have been submitting queries to me and manuscripts to me. And I've been reading, reading, reading. I read more in my current life than I've ever read ever before, including when I was in graduate school and read four novels a week plus a play. <laughs> so how, how do you read? I mean, do you read really quickly? Are you looking deeply at the first few pages and seeing if they hook you? Like, how has this changed your reading? I, it depends. If I am reading a manuscript cover to cover, I read very deeply and I read slowly and I take pages and pages and pages of notes. Uh, if I'm reading a submission, I'm reading for something that's going to grab me and something that's going to really pull me in. It could be a great voice. It could be a great premise, a great hook, a great setting, you, hopefully all of the above. Sometimes if something doesn't immediately grab me, I do try and give it a chance and I will read down. So for example, if it has a prologue and the prologue isn't really working for me, I'll skip the prologue and I'll go straight to the first chapter and see if it works. And then even then, if it doesn't really grab me right away, I will still skim a little bit and see, is there a piece of dialogue, something that will pull me in? Because I want to like it. Right. You're looking for a reason to give it a chance. I want to get married. I want to my clients. <laughs> <laughs> and have you found something where you get in, you go past the prologue, you go past the first couple chapters, and, and suddenly it takes hold? Uh, yes. Yeah. I have. Uh, that's That's usually... That usually doesn't happen. A lot of times if I don't like the prologue, sometimes the first chapter will pull me in. And just turns out that I feel like the prologue that the author needs to write it to access their story, but I don't need it as a reader. And so Mm -hmm. I just skip that and I go to the first chapter and the first chapter is dynamite. I'm in. Yeah. And that does happen. And I think what, uh, and then sometimes the prologue will be awesome. And then I get to the first chapter and it's like completely something else. Like, and then I have to say they lose me. <laughs> right, right. What have you learned? What are kind of the top three lessons you've learned, you know, as a writer or for writers from? Yeah, from- no, that's great. That's great thought. Um, a few things just from reading a ton of submissions, a ton of submissions. And constantly I read them all the time. Um I've thought a lot about like what really grabs a reader and what can a writer do to grab, to get attention of an agent. Um, I will say just first and foremost, I feel like really great writers often cannot pitch to save their lives. 
They're so close to their project. They know every facet of it, every word, every character, everything, that it's just really hard for them to pull out those choice morsels and pull and say, hey, here's my project. This is what it's about and narrow it down. On the flip side, there are people who are amazing pitchers who cannot write to save their lives. Mm. I've seen pitches that where I'm like, oh, I've got to read this. And, oh. so. <laughs> and for those of you at home who can't actually see Jennifer, she had a very, very sad look on her face. The disappointment of being ready from that exciting pitch to that not so compelling first sentence. Yeah. Exactly. So I would say for those of you out there, you're a great writer. You've got the best project ever. You just can't seem to pitch it. If you're sending it to me, it's okay. I will read your pages. And if you, and it's your pages is what counts for me and I'll help you with your pitch. Mm. Um, but so what is, um, what really grabs me? specifically with a first line and first lines I do think really matter. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of rules like don't start with a dream. Don't start with a move. Don't start with whatever X, Y, Z. I think those rules are good advice for everyone because it's true. Most people can't really pull it off well, but that's not to say you can't break the rule. If you have start with a dream and that dream really matters and it's dynamite and it works, then I'm in. Um, similarly, like with dialogue, a lot, you know, don't start with a dialogue line. Um, and for me, that's usually not the best way either, because I find a lot of people use throwaway dialogue lines again to access their story, or if they would just flip it and start with the, the next line, which gives us context, right. which gives us character which gives us um, and gives us what's happening in the story. So what makes that dynamite first line? I, I did exactly what I hate, which is telling you what not to do. I like to focus on what to do. I think the best first line gives you context and raises a question in the reader's mind and preferably more than one. Mm, that's a lot for a first line to do. It's, it's a lot for a first line to do. But it really does, like, if you can just rate, like, last night I killed my dad. Boom. <laughs> Why? Why'd you kill your dad? What did he do? That raises all kinds of questions in my mind, right? Right. So, not that that's the best first line, but. You know. And and so, you know, <laughs> have, because I have seen both your work and, you know, having been in grad school with you. Um, I'm sort of curious, and this is just more of a personal thing, the, the foray into, into, you know, yeah, because I think that one, you've just always, you have to know that Jennifer, we did, we read this book, Memento Mori, and still love that book, but Jennifer made copious notes, drew a diagram about what was <laughs> happening, brought it into class to talk about like who it could possibly be, and Nobody read like that. Well, I don't want to give away the end, but yeah. Yeah, nobody read the way that Jennifer read. So, um, and at the same time, you were writing amazing, wonderful, compelling YA stuff. And so just, you know, so where are you now? How do these things come together for you? And um, yeah. Okay, how did I become an agent? So um, 
I went to the Big Sur Writers Workshop, Children's Writers Workshop, a few years ago. Is this the wrong way to do it? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm sorry. We're just laughing because I've been told that I take like 20 minutes to run up to a question and then I make a statement and then no one really knows what the question is. So you did a great job of just concisely <laughs> saying, how did you become an agent? So. Well, no, I love that you brought up Memento Mori and I haven't thought about that in a while. And you're right. the That book drove me crazy because... It didn't answer the question. I hadn't, it posed a question at the beginning of the answer and you don't find out the end and it drove me crazy and I hated that. And it was such a good book. And then the end was so disappointing. And I actually think that's actually a perfect segue into how did I become an agent? Because the way, what happened was I was going to the, uh, Andrea Brown literary agency sponsors a workshop every year called Big Sur. Uh, children's workshop. It's the first weekend in December. I'm going to be on faculty this year, I think. Hooray! Um, and it's a great opportunity for you to show your work to editors and agents and really um, get some really good constructive feedback in a way that you don't get from grad school or critique groups or anything else because someone's telling you, hmm, could this sell? Or, hey, I think your story is starting in the wrong place or I would never read past page two. Um, Although that's not very nice feedback. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I personally would not give that feedback. But um, anyway, so I went there and I was uh, workshopping my story, and which was dystopian. And dystopian is sadly a category that is not selling right now. So, um, But in the meantime, I met some terrific women and I met um, a bunch of agents and I got this opportunity to apply for an internship with the agency and I thought, Oh, I'll just try this. I'll see, I'll get to learn more about the industry, see what I think and learn more about how to pitch my own writing. Cause I can't, I can't pitch my own writing to save my life. I'm really good at pitching other people's I'm not good at writing my pitching my own, which is why I have so much empathy for writers who cannot pitch. Um, anyway, so I got, I had to take an editorial test and I loved it. I got to read three manuscripts and give feedback on those manuscripts and say what was working, what wasn't, how I would fix it. But um, one of the things that Laura Renner does, who's my boss or who I've been working for, she's now my colleague, is uh, that she approaches every negative is a positive. Mm. Everything that's not working right now, currently in a, in a manuscript is an opportunity to make it better. And I love that approach. It's so positive. It's so encouraging. It's so supportive. And it's so motivating, I feel like. So um, anyway, I did the editorial test. I passed. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> and then um, I started interning for her. And she told me, okay, so I'll need you about 10, 10 to 20 hours a week. And I was like, yeah, you're going to get 10 hours from me, Tops. That's it. And next thing I know, I'm working 20 hours a week. I totally loved everything about it. It tapped into a lot of my skills from my prior job in marketing and mm -hmm. PR. Um, I love to write pitches. I love to write pitches for anybody but me. Um, I loved reading submissions. And what I especially loved, which is kind of what you're talking about with Memento, Memento Mori, is I love editorial work. I love to read someone's manuscript and go through and look for those opportunities to make it better. And then to find the ways to give constructive feedback and suggestions that will hopefully guide the author or better yet, inspire them to come up with their own idea. We'll take it to the next level. And for me, it is so rewarding to see somebody 
revise their work and bring it back to me and just see how my my feedback helped them and and also to the magic of revision of how it just blossoms and grows and I mean it's incredible. I love that process. I love it. So now can you talk about the other side, meeting with editors? What what does sell why it was what Sever sells sell, you know? Yeah. So um so I went to my first conference, which I saw you, Elizabeth, there at uh, San Francisco Writers Conference. And that was my, I, beforehand, I reached out to a bunch of editors that were going to be there and said, hi, I'm new. I'm with the Andrea Brown Literary Agency, and I'd love to meet with you and talk about what you're looking for. And it was so much fun. I met with Brenda Copeland at St. Martin's Press. Um, I talked with Annie Berger at HarperCollins, uh, who's now at Sourcebooks. She's already moved. Um, and we just, like... Connect and actually, Brenda Copeland and Angie is uh, editing um, Ethel. Wrote, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, very nice. Someone you went to graduate school with? Yes, yes she's a friend from grad school. Yeah. So, and I read Ethel's book, so I got to talk to Brenda about what she's doing with with uh, Ethel's book. And so, basically, my approach for each editor was this: to find out what they were looking for, what they're interested in, and they were very different because Brenda does adult. Annie does uh, middle grade and YA. And then I also asked them about their editorial process and how they like to work with authors because I'm so new. I'm not sure. And it was fascinating. Um, their editorial approach is a lot like mine, although I think I'll probably be doing a few more rounds than they do. But basically, they, they go in and do a very in-depth review. And then they will actually then go in a second time and do an in-depth line edit. Mm-hmm. And then again, then they'll do a final polishing around. And it's incredible because you think about, okay, if an author is, a, you know, before an author even comes to me as the agent, they've probably gone through, I don't know, so many, you know, four or five revisions. One hopes. <laughs> well, yeah. Probably. If, if, if it's good enough, they've either If you're going to get to the agent stage, you will have revised your, your book several times, yeah. at least three times. Um or more. And then, um, and then you'll come and if you sign with me, I'm very editorial and I'm going to work with somebody again and probably go through multiple rounds because I want to get it the very best we can have it be before we go out to editors. And then even from there, they're going to revise again several times with their editor and then it's just going to be awesome and it will sell. Right. (laughs) Are you flying to New York ideally to meet with people? I I just, I just got confirmation. I get to go to the first time to New York in May for, to meet with editors. I'm going to go with Laura and another agent from our uh, agency, Kelly Sonic. Is that for book expo America? We are not going for book expo. Um, no book expo is actually in Chicago this year. Oh yeah. So okay. We're going to miss that one. So we're just going directly to New York to meet with editors. I will be at SCBWI LA. I think, Thing. I'm still trying to confirm that that Society of Children's Writers and Ill- just the uh, Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, and it'll be in the show notes. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> and uh, I'm uh, in next the week after next. I'm so the week of the 18th. I'm running the Boston Marathon on the 18th, awesome. and then I come home for a day, and then I'm going to go to Colorado for the Northern California Writer. Colorado Writers Conference. Wow. Uh, I'm going to be at Santa Barbara Writers Conference. I think I'm going to be at SCBWI Pennsylvania. I haven't conven- I haven't confirmed that one yet. I'm going to be at Book Passage this summer in July. 
So I'm trying to just hit as many as I can. Yeah. So what is, you know, are you focusing on kids in YA? That was a focus of you or work? Yes. Yeah. So uh, Andrew Brown Literary Agency is a children's lit agency. So we do, we represent picture books, uh, chapter books, middle grade and YA. And I personally will be representing picture books uh, middle grade and YA and possibly some adult. Laura Rennert does represent some literary women's fiction. I would like to, too. I also really love thrillers. Yeah. <laughs> Just love thrillers and I love horror. So if I got a dynamite, you know, horror novel that's adult or a thriller, it would be really hard for me to turn it down. So <laughs> what if you had like how many YA thrillers are there? I think YA thrillers are a big opportunity right now, actually. Mm-hmm. So it's funny, um, you know, everyone, I, everyone I've been talking to is like, what are the trends? What's next? Um, and the problem, as you probably know, with the book industry is like, it is so slow. So like anything I'm buying right now is going to be like, you know, that I'm going to sign right now is probably going to come out. Or even if I sold it right now, let's not even say sign. If I sold it right now, 2018, 2019, like years so, like, anything that you're writing on right now, that's going to be the trend three years from now. Like, who knows what it's going to be then? Mm-hmm. So, if the best thing I could say to everyone is do not write to the trends. Do not try and pick up on a trend. If you pick up on it now, it's already gone. Just write the story that you love. Write the story you want to write. That said, <laughs> Andrea Brown, who is the head of our agency, told me her thought is that the children's lit um, – Children's lit tends to follow the adult trends by about two years, like lags behind. So what was really hot two years ago in adult fiction? Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> uh, okay, not Fifty Shades. I was thinking Gone Girl. Right. Right. So right. We have a picture so, book about someone who may or may not have taken someone else's lunch. Well, maybe not that, but I'd love to see – I would love to see a YA thriller, you know, with a with – a, questionable protagonist or you know something where you know i would love a bad boyfriend i would <laughs> i would love you know Wait, didn't you like, have that already but i would love to see a story about a bad boyfriend or like a relationship going yeah. sour or you know i would yeah. love to see a, a talented mr ripley type but with maybe a female protagonist where she's just getting worse and worse Mm. So now let me actually this because Angie's, for example, has this fantastic novel and it has two teenage uh, narrators and one adult narrator. Two teenagers. Yeah, that's too bad, Angie. That's adult. Yeah. Yeah, And I I mean, I actually said to her because because, uh, somebody who's a very, you know, hard to please agent basically said, your writing's really strong. I don't know how to place this. Send me your next novel, which is pretty awesome. And I, and I thought, you know, that's maybe what, what? If she didn't, that's huge because if she didn't like your writing, she would just say, thank you. Yeah. 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 She would not leave the door open because she doesn't need more submissions. Right. Right. So the question is in a case like that, should somebody consider theoretically taking out, <laughs> taking out the adult narrator? I mean, because the, it is really in some ways it's all, I mean, the adult is a really interesting character, but it's, it's a lot about the kids that, you know, that's a mom and two daughters. And um, I don't know. What do you think about that? Doesn't this sound like a question you might ask her one-on-one at another moment? <laughs> and maybe she has. <laughs> Did I? 
Um, Because there's nothing awkward here, just to say. So you're asking essentially what defines children lit? That is, that's the question. We'll just cut to that. For YA, it needs to be a teenage voice and there cannot be an adult voice. And the fact that there is, that there's that third adult perspective makes an adult novel for sure. Or even if it's an adult, right. Looking back, the, the voice is an adult looking back on an experience in childhood. That's still an adult project. I even heard, I think Elizabeth George say, even if an adult is kind of a major actor in the plot, that can't be. I don't know about that. I think there are a lot of stories where a parent might be a major, a major character in the story, but as long as you were getting the perspective of the teen or the kid. The how, child, how long is a YA novel compared to, say, an adult novel? Are they comparable? Are they slightly different? Um, I would say like 65 to 90,000 words. So they're somewhat comparable. I think, I think adult projects tend to, can be a lot longer. And, and some of the YA fantasy might get up past 100,000 words because of the world building and but yeah, I think it tends to be like 90,000 tends to be the cap. I like a good 75 to 80,000 <laughs> <for> manuscript. <laughs> I think that's kind of a sweet spot. But yeah. And then middle grade is, um, is less. Um, I could, there's uh, Jennifer Lofren did a fantastic post on her blog. That's called uh, word count Dracula. I think. It goes into all the different word counts for the different mm. different projects, and I should have it up in front of me, and I, I don't. I'll pull it up, but um, and we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, I can email that to you guys. It's really great, and she outlines everything and explains why. But basically, so the difference is, so a picture book is thirty two pages, preferably th- three hundred fifty words or less, and mm. it's going to be a complete story. It's going to be from the perspective of the child, not the parent. Again. If it's from the perspective of a parent, it's not. It's Unless you're talking about go the fuck to sleep. But that's not, <laughs> that's not a picture book for kids. No, it's not. <laughs> I don't think. Our kids uh, love it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and then the middle grade is um, slightly longer, maybe 35,000 to 65,000 words. And what makes a middle grade is different is that it's a younger voice. So, you know, somewhere between the ages of 10 and 13. And the majority of the audience for a middle grade is actually kids. Mm-hmm. Kids yeah. who read middle grade. There are some parents who will read middle grade, but they're reading them to their kids. There are There's a very small percentage of adults that are reading middle grade for pleasure. That It's not that it doesn't happen. Harry Potter, uh, Wonder, there's books that were that does happen. But for the most part, it's actually kids. And then they're gatekeepers, librarians, teachers, and parents. And um, I would say that we are heavily in that gatekeeper middle grade category right now. We're doing a lot of reading middle grade aloud and getting read too. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. So it's got to have that younger perspective and and it's also going to be something that's going to be uh, 
copacetic with the gatekeepers, right? So it's not going to be, even if there's violence, like say the lightning thief, it's not going to be extreme violence. It's not going to be super bloody. Uh, things are going to happen af- off camera. Um, there's not going to be sex. The romance is going to be very light and, and subtle. It's not going to be extreme. Then we get into YA, <laughs> young adults. And um, you can get pretty gritty and dark in YA and you can, I mean, there can be murder, there can be blood, there can be sex, there can be violence, uh, there can be bad language. Um, and interestingly enough, a lot of the young adult audience is adult. Like Mm -hmm. that's a much bigger percentage of adults who are purely reading YA for pleasure and specifically buying it. It does sound dirty when you say it after the things that can go into YA and then, Adults reading for pleasure. It just oh, sounds sorry. a little... <laughs> it's that way. I just mean that it's like a, it's a broader audience. Yes. A lot of adults in that, that audience. Um, and with YA, you can get longer, but even so, it's still going to be the teen perspective. I mean, it's not going to be your mom's perspective. You don't want your... Nobody it, it wants to hear your mom's perspective. No. It also seems like a lot of kids are reading up. So if they're... Um, eight, they want to read about kids who are 12. Exactly. exactly. And a lot of time. And so for teens, you know, who's reading YA for te- a lot of it's 12, 13 year olds, right? Mm-hmm. We're reading YA. Uh, my son who's 14 is reading Game of Thrones right now. Mm-hmm. He's reading adults. So yeah, I think there's those aspirations. And then he could probably get to be 35 and he'll start reading YA again. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> There didn't used to be such a such delineation among the categories, right? I mean, I don't know, think that Catcher in the Rye was marketed as well. That's an adult book. Yeah. So you, but it isn't. It isn't from an adult perspective. No, but I think that was. I think that was originally published as an adult book. I think it's just sort of. We just all had to read it in high school. It was embraced. Well, but that was many years after yes. the publication. Yes. But I mean, I wonder if that was because there weren't so many books being sort of YA books at that time do you want to give us a history of ya in under two minutes <laughs> oh i'm trying to think of when catcher in the rye was published i know I mean, it's it's right? 50s yeah. yeah i mean there were definitely books being published for kids and for teens in the 50s but that was definitely a groundbreaking book in terms of the way you know the subject matter yeah and that perspective it was fresh and new and different yeah yeah what do you what do you think about comedic writing like we've been reading over and over again on. Give me funny i love funny in fact um i was talking to a bunch of people at the san francisco writers conference i had all these guys um you know i always say like why is my sweet spot but the truth is i would love to get a great middle grade and i'd love to get i love really funny picture books love them i love bob shea big big plans is one of my favorite books ever i love mac barnett i think he's brilliant I love Aaron Reynolds, I, Dan Satin. I would love to get any of those guys or someone like that. Not and anyway. So, but funny. Yeah, I had all these uh, writers at the conference pitching to me funny middle grade novels like adventure, boy protagonist, funny, and I love it. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think I think funny is always appealing. It's hard to do though. It's hard to do well and to mm-hmm. make that voice and to and to get that humor that connects with kids. And I think children's lit writers, and I'm going to reveal something about myself that Angie probably already knows. I think for people who write children's lit, they tend to live in that mindset of wherever, like, 
like deep inside, like maybe you're a 10 year old boy or for me, I'm a, I'm a 16 and a half year old, uh, teen girl who's hates her mother and is wearing all black and is really angry at the world. And so excited about and shimmering vampires. Yes. <laughs> Which is not what we're seeing right now. I know. I know. It doesn't, it doesn't match the current image. You know, our kids love, do you know Planet Tad? No, I don't heard of Planet Tad. So the guy who wrote it is used to write, I think, for The Daily Show, whatever. But he... I do know that. Yes, I know who you're talking about. Our kids love... I mean, like, Andy read it, it too. again. And I I love it, too. So I think I'm maybe, like, a middle school boy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I think he does it extremely well because it's also very reflexive. He doesn't, see, he doesn't like, make fun of other people so right. much. Like, he makes fun of, you know, a couple of characters, but... It's not like this kind of, you know, there's humor can veer off into being mean sometimes if you're not careful about it. And he's definitely got this whole series of, you know, bad things that happen to Tad and how Tad handles them and, um, and really connects it to the character of Tad and how he messes things up because of who he is. And it's, it's really fun to read. So So it sounds like he's got a humorous perspective. He's got a great point of view and it sounds like it's really tight and he makes these interesting observations that no one else would. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes him so unique, which is what I think helps build voice. Actually. Mm -hmm. I think a lot, like, I feel like a lot of agents and editors are always saying like, I'm looking for that voice. I want voice, great voice. Like, and as a writer, I was always like, what is voice? Do I have a voice? Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of it has to do with with point of view and perspective. And and can you really tighten it? And can you really think, get into the, the inside, that character, and look through their eyes at the world and see the world the way they see? And they're going to notice things that I myself would never notice. And that's why I want to read that story. That's why I want to get into that. That's why I'm going to love that character so much because they're going to just expand my world. Are there, is there a gap between the books you love, you fall in love with and the sense that you can sell them? Is there another step you have to go through? That's well, that's not, (laughs) that's so I kind of haven't gotten there yet. Maybe we should talk again in six months. Um, So I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's definitely, I've seen projects like that are at the agency that I think are amazing. And for whatever reason, they don't sell. And it baffles me sometimes. It really baffles me because it's so good. And it's so, it's, yeah, and it's so different and so fun. But for whatever reason, the market is just not doing it at that point in time. Do you, do you ever have, I mean, have you seen with other agents in the agency, a project come in that, that there is love for, but no sense of how to place it. And so it, it's yeah. going to pass on. Pass yeah. On. Well, let's just take, um, I mean, like, let's just take something like what Angie, the Angie's book, for example, that's got the adult, the mom and the two kids and these different perspectives. How do you position that book? It's, it's adult, but it also feels like it's young adult, but yet it doesn't fit in that category. So how do you sell it? How do you pitch it? I think there's a lot of, a lot of cases like that. And sometimes you're just going to hope that you find that editor who's willing to take the risk or sees the vision or knows how to do it. I mean, like if you think about it, like wonder, have you read wonder? No, we heard a lot about it. Yeah. So wonder breaks the rules. I mean, wonder is a middle grade book, but they've got it, you know, uh, his sister's teenage boyfriend is one of the voices in that book. So, 
I mean, the, I mean, it can, and that's a huge bestseller. So, I mean, it can, it can happen, but you've got to find the right, first of all, you've got to have a dynamite, you've got to have a terrific project that's really great and really fresh and really different. And then like everything, if you can break the rule, if you, if you do it well. Can you just, before we do our last segment, can you give some tips on packaging your project to submit to an agent? What would you like to see people coming to you with? So a lot of crayons, a lot of um, coffee stains, kind of no, crumbly so paper. How to, pitch to, uh, how to pitch to me or pitch to Andrea Brown, a literary agency. We request you write a query letter and in an email, send an email. And then you include the first 10 pages of your manuscript, or if it's a picture book, the entire text of the picture book project. And if you're an illustrator, you can include JPEGs uh, for illustrations. Um, but please no attachments like in complete manuscripts unless we request. So, uh, and some tips on the query letters is, first of all, if you're going to apply, if you're going to, for anyone, I would research the agents and, and try and find people who you feel like you connect with that you'd want to work with, whose style you like. And going to a conference is a great way to do it because you'll see me on a panel with three other agents and you're going to get a sense of just how we react to different things and how we talk and what our interpersonal skills are like, you know. <laughs> I'd be able to work with that person, which right. I think is important. I would actually really underline that interpersonal skills are critical on uh, your relationship with your agent. Like, if yeah, you have a hard time interacting with that person, it's not going to be. Yeah, if you're afraid to talk to them, it's not going to be good. Or if you think they're too harsh, it's not going to be good. Or if you think that they're too um, wishy-washy, it's also not going to be good. You want to have a good connection with them. And similarly, for me, I'm going to be looking for someone who I who will revise and who's willing to work with me editorially and who let, and who responds to my feedback and you know can we can have a really good give and take because my goal is to make them the best they can be and if I'm not inspiring them, I'm not the right fit for them. And similarly with uh, communication skills too, like how do you like to communicate? Do you want to be able to text? Do you want to be able to email? Will my agent pick up the phone? Like that's those are all kind of questions. For the query letter. For us, um, first of all, use a very easy to read font. I use Gmail and it converts weird things. Like when people have formatting and weird fonts, I it's horrible. I can't read it. I want to read it. So use a simple to read font. And then um, a query letter should be just simple salutation. Dear Jennifer. And then the first paragraph or two should be the pitch for your book. You know, who, what, why, where, and how. Try and make it tight and really raise that question in my mind, something that I just have to know. So I want to read the book. You know, why did you kill your dad? I want to know. <laughs> we keep coming back to that one and we can talk about that one after the end of the podcast. <laughs> why did your boyfriend steal his car? Okay. Okay. And then from there, just a quick blurb about who you are and what and what you do. Like, uh, my name is Jennifer Soloway. I, I went to Mills College. I got an MFA in 2005. I was a fellow at the San Francisco Grotto. Perfect. That's all I need to know. If it's your first novel and you haven't done anything ever in your life, okay, just write that. This is my first novel. Hope you like it. <laughs> love whoever. And then, or love. I like that. So oh, make sure to write kidding. love at the end no, of your. No, write love. I might get weirded out. <laughs> right. XO, XO. Best, best whoever. Okay. Best my name. And then include the first 10 pages of your work. So 
Um, and like I said, for me, who I am, even if the pitch isn't totally grabbing me, I will still read the pages. What I really want is to love the pages. And so what I would say is make sure those first 10 pages are really great. Make sure there's some conflict happening. There's some drama. There's something that's interesting. That's going to really pull me in. Um, I don't mind some, uh, exposition, but I want there to be a scene. I want there to be something that's happening. I want to connect with the character. I want to connect with the voice, whether it's third person or first I want to get in there, care about that character and want to go on a journey with them. So, and then I will say what happens then if I, so then with the 10 pages, I'll say, I love it. And I send a, I'll send a request to the author and say, I'm really intrigued with your work and I'd love to read more. And I'll ask for either a partial or a full, depending on how much, how much potential I see. And then a lot of times when I'll read the, the, um, submit the longer manuscript. Um, if the first 10 pages are great, then sometimes it will fall apart after that. Like you can tell the person's worked really hard on those first 10 pages, really done a great job, but then it just starts to fall apart. I would say, make sure that your manuscript really, really is tight, really pulled together, really revise and make it the best you can be and the best you can get it to be. And especially with your friends, with your critique groups, whatever, as much as you can do on your own. Um, I find that a lot of times things will fall apart after the first 10 pages. If not, they might fall apart at the first 50 pages. Um, if I can get to a hundred pages and it's still really good, it's usually great. And even if the ending isn't quite there, I feel like that's, uh, that's enough for me. If I've fallen in love with the voice and the character and the story, I'm sold. And just, so are you, when you're reading these queries, I mean, are you sitting there reading, you know, 50 of them in a go? Like what's, what's the agent's experience of getting all of this? Just cause I think that helps people understand why, why it, it takes a be. month to get an answer back. Oh, why is it so long? Well, yeah. but also how it has to be clear and compelling, and you know right. what it, what it's like. What it's like in your chair. We get we get a lot of queries. Our agency gets hundreds, even thousands of queries. Um, definitely thousands over the course of the year. I read many, many queries every day, and. The way I work is I'll read something and if I like it even just a little bit and have, I think it has some potential, I'll mark it and I will go back to it and read it again. Because sometimes, like you said, if I've read 15 queries in a row, I might not be the, I might not be completely clear or I, you know, a lot of times I'll go back and I'll be like, oh yeah, that was really good. I need to request it. Or sometimes I might be like, oh, that was really good because everything else I was reading was so bad. So, <laughs> well, I mean, that's interesting too, because it also, you know, as, as people who are seeking representation, one thing to remember is there are certain things over which you have no control. And the truth is your submission, which could be really dynamite, might be in the middle of a series of dynamite ones, in which case it wouldn't necessarily stick out in the same it's way. Less about that. I think it's more like, say I was an established agent with a full list. I might get the best, most dynamite submission in the world, but it's just like a book I already have. Mm -hmm. Then I'm going to pass. It has nothing to do with that, with the writer or their project or anything. It's like, let's take Laura, for example. Laura is at the top of her career. She's got a full client list. It is very difficult to place with her. I, I talk to people all the time like, oh, Laura rejected me. Well, Laura is just, she's hard to place with. She's still open, but like she's got a big array of clients. And like I said, like maybe she's got a project that's just like yours. Doesn't mean yours won't sell, 
or or someone won't sign it. It's just that maybe she's not the right fit. Or maybe, you know, like I think everybody like, you know, you go into different phases of tastes. Like like right now I'm really into thrillers. I love thrillers, but maybe I'm gonna sign a bunch of thriller writers and next year I'm gonna be like, oh, you know, give I want a contemporary YA about, you know, farms just failing out of school or (laughs) you know it could be anything I think that that's what so yeah as much as you can as a writer trying to submit to agents try not to take it personally just try not to it can be so many different reasons so many factors beyond you Mm -hmm. Thank you so, so much. We just have our final segment. Uh, this is so helpful to people. You know, this is just, it's, it's such, it can be such a mystery what's on the other side of the curtain. Um, our final segment is called Steal This. Angie, you want to explain? So it is based on the idea that... Uh, Amateur poets. Well, are, I'm forgetting, I was trying to get the guy... Yes, Elliot. Thank you. I almost said D.H. Lawrence. Um, <laughs> a little different. Um, and so, yes... Amateur bar- poets borrow, professional poets steal. And so what is something that you've come across in your life that you would like to steal? So I was thinking about this uh, and I'm going to talk about this now as a writer, not an agent. Yeah. Um, I, I love crime. I love thrillers. And so I have a murder's alert on New York Times and I read. So anytime there's a murder that happens that's covered in the New York Times, I get so I, I know about every murder in this country. My husband jokes that like the FBI is going to be after me. And so I'm like following murders. Um, so I love to, to take sto- real stories like that and then make them my own. Like, and a similar, another thing that I like to steal is I love movies and I love TV, especially bad commercial, uh, television and film. And one of the things that I got, and I love, I lo- especially if I go and I hate it, like it, like oh, it had so much potential, and then it was just ah, oh, terrible. I love to go home, kind of like momentum, right? Yeah. Home and figure out like why wasn't that better? That could have been so good, and they blew it. The execution was terrible, and so I will go home and I'll come up with story ideas based on that. And my novel, my dystopian novel that's sitting in my laptop right now. <laughs> It was actually inspired by a movie called Surrogates, ah. 2009 with Bruce Willis, about this idea that you would send your surrogate out into the world. So you could just sit home, but then your surrogate could go out and have sex with people or do drugs or, you know, whatever. Hmm. But you'd be safely ensconced in your own privacy at your home, but like get to live vicariously through your surrogate. Okay. I love that premise. I mean, yeah. Especially you can try on different identities. Like I could be like, a tall, you know, man in his twenties, or I could be, you know, I could be a dog. I could be anything. Um, and so I, but the movie did not work for me. And so I went home and started to think through like, what could I do with that premise to make it work? So I like to steal ideas like that. Uh, similarly, I, and then, and then I conflate them with other ideas. Like, uh, I love the show Caprica, which is the precursor to Battlestar Galactica. Ah, do, they have this whole thing about a virtual game and that you can actually feel like you're in the game and again, having sex with people doing drugs, but you're, it's all, you know, through a video game. So you're not really doing it. Right. (laughs) And so I took those two ideas and definitely incorporated them into my novel. 
That's why some of us read, so we can live vicariously. Exactly. That's our story. To write at all? Are you getting to have kind of a writing life in the midst of all of this? I am. I am still writing. Yeah, but I'm really doing it for me right now, playing with craft. Mm -hmm. I've really been working on my editorial skills right now. That's been my. That's been my big focus, and I've really been. I've just been enjoying it a lot. But yeah, I still write for me, of course. That sounds wonderful. Um, Ange, anything you want to steal this week? Uh. Well, you know, I was, um, you know, when we, I walk the dog, I listen to books and one of the books I've been listening to is called Make It Stick and it's about how people learn. Of course, I keep having the urge to call it Stick It. I don't know why I go to talk to my kids' teachers. I'm reading this book called Stick It. No, that's not it. Um, but they talk about the idea of interleaving what you're learning so that you have these different things happening. So rather than just focusing on just your structure, say, or just your uh, dialogue, that you might take the ideas that you're doing for that and not master one, but start bringing them back and forth to each other. So before you're comfortable with structure, you, you do more focus on dialogue and then you hop back to something else. And that kind of a spiral approach. Yeah. And so what ends up happening is it feels more uncomfortable to learn and at the same time, apparently studies show, according to Stick It, that um, the effort of trying to learn actually is a core component in actually learning. So when you do mass learning, <laughs> I know this sounds really funny. When you do mass learning, just Google it and then know it. Right. When you do mass learning, the same kind of practice over and over, you feel like you're learning it, but it doesn't go into long-term memory. What happens is when you're pulling it without quite mastering it and trying to bring it into different situations, then you do that. So this is all actually just to say that as an artist, I need to get out more. And so <laughs> I need to interleave more, you know, outside life that is not my children's school, not my dog's walk. There's so much material there. There is, but so I think much material. I think I'm massing that material. I need to interleave it with some things. So um, that's so what that, I'm going that's to the steal. Takeaway yeah. There. Well, I'm reading Brenda Shaughnessy's new book so much synth it's a book of poetry mm-hmm. and um and one and she has this whole series called um mixed it's well it's a mix it's called a mixtape where there's a poem called a mixtape and then yeah and then there's side a and then each each poem you know segment and um and then side b <laughs> it's completely brilliant anyway and i was she's thinking, completely brilliant she's completely brilliant and i was thinking about um, I mean, I'm not a poet, but I think that for essay writing, I feel really inspired by this because hmm. it, it's these ideas, but they're all embodied. They're all embodied in imagery and scene. And so, and that I think is the, the strongest kind of essay writing and what I'm working on right now for a requested revision. And so I just feel inspired to um, steal Wait, what do you mean by requested revision? <laughs> so my, the, the sub-agent who sends out short stuff sent out an essay that I had written that was a little bit of a manifesto, even though I'm always making my students put everything into scene. I thought, well, but they always do these so, so I wrote this manifesto about story writing and this editor wrote back and said, we'd be interested in this if it could be dramatic personal narrative scene. I mean, she's strung together like every, you know, every way of saying like, make this, you know, a scene, which is just exactly what I teach like day after day, week after week. It's what I say all the time. This yeah. Great opportunity for a scene. Yeah. Don't <laughs> so surprise I, I, it. Now what I want to know is like, did you see a narrative thread that could become a story in this manifesto? But 
anyway, I'm just going to, you know, dig one out of my flesh. Um, and I'm going to use this poetry book as a model. <laughs> nice. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'm so excited about your work and all the fantastic lucky people who are going to get to be your clients. I hope so. I, I'm ready for them. 